Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 39 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 27th of October. And Leon, this week we're talking about cybersecurity and all its evils with Manuja Widjasekera of Wavelength. That's right. He's going to be talking to us all about Wavelength, the value-added distributor of technology solutions for the mobile enterprise in Australia and New Zealand and the implications for cyber security. And it's a big topic right now, of course. And then after that, we've got a fascinating dissertation from Nicholas Gruen. And as usual, he's got a lot of good ideas. That's right. So now let's listen to uh, Manuja. Manuja, you're the architect, solutions architect at Wavelength. That's correct. And Wavelength's pretty good at cybersecurity. Yes, we work as a distributor. So we work with uh, Vendor Channel, with the partner Vendor Channel to distribute Distribute uh, technology solutions in cyber safety. One of the things that's interesting right at the moment as the world moves on very quickly is the Internet of Things and machine-to-machine talking. What are the security risks in that? Uh, there's a lot of security risks at the moment, especially with Internet of Things. Uh, that's mainly due to the fact that most devices don't have security. They weren't built for security. They weren't built for connectivity, today, especially for network connectivity and Internet connectivity. So therefore, it opens up a lot of gaps at the moment. And it's very new for a lot of people that I guess they think I've got a robot talking to a computer or something like that, and those guys know what they're doing. But a hacker can get into it, can steal, say, industrial secrets is that the risk uh, they can steal industrial secrets but also it can be patient safety if you take medi- uh, the medical industry for example right? a lot of times you use those sort of devices to connect to machines which you know help patients and if someone can actually get access to those machines they can hold hospitals or medical centers for ransom mm-hmm. until you pay those guys they actually you know they can turn off machines which can be life and death scenario so in a in a way that form of not only is a criminal but could be a form of warfare. Well, it'll, it'll be, it is some sort of a warfare, but yeah, it's more of the criminal aspect of it, and yeah, it's in the health and safety aspect of it as well. So how would you, your company, go about protecting machine-to-machine network? Because usually they could be quite large. So how would you go about protecting them, detecting What's going on? Yeah, so what the way we work at Wavelink is we, we actually work with a vendor called Fortinet, which has lost security technologies, and we actually work with the partner channel where we design solutions and help the partner channel to actually deploy good solutions to actually mitigate those sort of risks using the Fortinet technologies. Now, in the, the rest of the world where everybody's using email, everybody's using Facebook, the risks are greater than they've ever been, aren't they? Yes, that's correct. Where where would Facebook's vulnerability, we had a lot of talk about that, how would an ordinary person protect themselves against hacking, theft of ID, all of these risks? Uh, for, no, for ordinary people, it's more about understanding, obviously, in terms of what sort of risks are there, first and foremost. But there's good good information from the government. So you got a site called Stay Smart Online. So if they go into that particular website, there's a lot of resources they can get in terms of how they can protect themselves and their children and so on and so forth. Uh, that's the pl- first place I would say you start off with. Making sure that you have, you know, if you're using a computer, making sure that you update the computer with all your patches, etc. Making sure you have AV installed on your computer and those sort of applications up to date and it's just you know just 
understanding that if we don't know something, to actually reach out to somebody who might have some knowledge. You might have friends who work in the cyber safety industry. So reaching out and saying, you know what, I don't know something. Do you think this is suspicious? That's an important part of it. But big companies use Facebook and Twitter. Presidents of the United States use, use Twitter. In a commercial use of Facebook, would that present a problem, say, for a company like Maya or David Jones, who use it to promote their products and to connect with their customers? Is that a risk to the company and as well as to the customer? Uh, there can always be a risk with social media. It's one of the biggest uh, attack vectors at the moment. But it's also in those companies, you got a lot of IT security staff as well. So they also will be monitoring those of what's happening on those websites as well as they'll have technologies that can mitigate those risks and bring down risks to a very you know, minimal effect. Would the biggest risk be theft of ID? Uh, if they get access in, it could be theft of ID, but it also can be confidential information in terms of if it's if it's an if it's end user, it most probably be theft of ID. But if it's an organization, it'll be more confidential information that they have and business plans and what they want to do, etc. Going forward, and also credit card and, and banking information. Too, oh yes, definitely yes. If it's a PCI environment, it can be credit card if they're doing anything in regards to it. But a lot of times, it's good networks are built with good security. So if as long as you have good policies and procedures in place and you actually have different types of actually technologies you can all you can cover a lot of those scenarios the risk then is not going to go away is it i mean it's going to get these the cyber criminals have make a lot of money and can hire very expert people to penetrate networks can't they yes they definitely have a lot of resources and sometimes when it's state sponsored you know they have unlimited resources so that's that is always a challenge but it's it's a way that from my 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 experience you got to look at three different things you got to look at good technology. You've got to make sure you have a good process or governance frameworks in place. So you're making sure things are updated, patched and everything else. And you've got to give education to users. right? So you've got to make sure your staff are educated, that they know when to look for certain things that are bad. And if they, they're not sure about something, to actually reach out to your IT teams or to your technology teams and ask them a question saying, you know what, I got this sort of suspicious email. Do you think that it's actually a valid email or is it a dodgy email? Because they might actually then actually look into it more detail and say, you know, hey, that's actually good. You actually brought up something that we didn't know before and recently we've had a case where the the basic password wasn't even changed it was still admin uh, and a lot of defense information got swiped how often does that happen because i can remember it from years ago they didn't bother i think it's it's happening a lot more than we know uh, a lot of times uh, people don't report on it because Australian laws still, until February next year, don't have the mandatory breach laws that you need to report on hacking attempts and attacks and so on. So I, I think it happens a lot more than we know of. Yeah, and nobody's going to admit it in any case, are they, inside a company? Uh, not unless, you know, you, you've been forced to, you know, admit it. Uh, hopefully things are changing because you, know, you learn from some of those experiences, so it's good to actually talk about it. And end of the day, no one's perfect, right? We're all humans, you all do mistakes, but as long as you share and you can learn from it and be better then that's that's the main thing be, be aware and be be cynical about everything again Correct. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you can't you can't protect from everything. And like you said before, you know, you, there's certain people who have a lot of unlimited resources, and if they won't hack you, they will hack you. So it's a case of understanding that, and you know, putting correct protection in place, having good technology, having good governance, and having good people, making sure you know you cover end to end, rather than some companies just focus on technology or some companies just focus on people. Just make sure you cover the whole spectrum of it. And there's a lot of in the people in the industry you can reach 
reach out to, you know, talk to the community, talk to the security community in Australia and Melbourne and find ways of, you know, making sure you can develop yourself to a, to a higher level. We've been talking mostly about governments and big companies, but it's across the board. A small company, you were talking about ransomware, a small company could be almost ruined, couldn't it? A lot of small companies go out of business within six months once they have a ransomware attack from what research has shown us so far. So yes, it is a, it is a major issue for smaller companies. And for the criminal, if you can get a thousand small companies and a thousand dollars from each of them, that's quite a lot of money. Yes, and especially when you don't have to do a lot of work because most of the tools are available freely on the internet. Yeah. So in the dark net, you got a lot of those tools, so you don't have to do a lot of work to get it. And you know you have you know, very, a little bit little amount of work you need to actually do to break into a company's cyber infrastructure. So for, um, say, a, small, a restaurant or something like that that's got good relations with its customers, carries, you know, has a lot of conversation between the customers and the company, what should it do? I mean, somebody would block them. Should they make sure they've got backup and all this sort of thing? Can they ignore the ransom demand provided that they've got a secure source of their information away from their computer? They need to make sure, like you said, they need to make sure they back up things, but also making sure that the backup is protected. A lot of companies do the mistake of having backups, but those backups sit on the same network. So when ransomware attacks happen, they not only attack your computers and your local information, but they also encrypt your backups so you don't have anything to go with right so you're going to make sure your backups are carefully protected they're ideally not on-site they're off-site in a secure location that's that's number one um, also working with your managed partners so you might have a partner that manages your IT infrastructure working with them talking to them and saying how can you achieve you know better utilize their knowledge and skill sets to be more secure you might have what well, the simplest would be what a another hard drive that is you do a backup and then you take it out of the network would that work uh, sometimes for smaller companies that might be effective you actually have a second hard drive that you take home but what happens if you know who's responsible for it you know if you take it home and someone breaks it to you breaks into that person's home who takes responsibility right because in the day it's a company's information right so usually my recommendation would be is to use these organizations that actually provide backup services to use them because they will actually protect that information at a maybe at a, you know same as like a top secret level you know safeguards that they can do compared to someone taking a backup home yeah and backup services around and not desperately expensive. Some of them are some of them expensive depending on the levels you need of the backup, but you know the law of ones that can be affordable depending on your security the information you have. So you gotta decide first and foremost is how critical is that information for your business to continue to operate. Right? If the information is not important, if you don't have credit information and so on, maybe it's not important to go for you know you could maybe use a hard drive that you know as a secondary backup option. But if the information is critical, it needs to be up 24 by 7, you must use a, a backup service that is reputable and can give you that sort of service guarantees. Yeah, and they would know if somebody's trying to knock at their door. Yes, correct, definitely. They also have the protections, you know, they, that would be needed. Manuj, it's fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Well, if we weren't warned before, we are now, aren't well, we? Well, very interesting insights for Manjua. It's very interesting about uh, what cybersecurity can, is doing. It changes virtually by the minute. And, and that's up. right, and it's about keeping up. Yep. And now some new thinking from Nick Gruen. Nicholas, uh, how would you explain the Trump and Brexit phenomena? There are plenty of people who are offering, if you like, materialist explanations for what's going on. The materialist explanation is pretty straightforward that inequality has been growing. Uh, both the United States and the United Kingdom have gone through 
pretty bad economic times, not just in terms of inequality, uh, but in terms of just the growth uh, of the economy generally through the global financial crisis. I, I don't think there's any doubt that that's important. I think there's a fair bit more to it than that. Australia is a good control group in a way because we had so much milder economic impact, and yet some of the main things that are happening politically, the long, slow decline of faith and trust in our political institutions, the falling share of the vote going to major parties, the volatility of that vote. All of the trends in Australia are very similar to the trends in the UK and the US and and Europe. Uh, so I think there's something more to it than that. And I guess I see this as very much bound up in the culture of our system. And it sounds fairly grandiose, I suppose. But the more I've read about this, the more I see that the logic, that there are two ways to set up a democracy. One is a way in which emphasizes competition. That's the system we've got. That's the system you end up with, with elections. Uh, and what's the alternative way to represent the people? Well, we use it in juries. Uh, you, we select a bunch of people from the community. They're nothing special. They're not special kind of people. We, uh, in juries, we, we select them at random, uh, but we could select them to be representative of the community and make sure that they had the right number, the you know, same number of men and women, the right sort of age distribution, the right distribution of income and class. Now, if you are sitting in a jury, there isn't, you're not competing with anyone. If you're a politician in our current system, you don't get to be a politician without beating another politician. That has that and the behavior of the media, if you like, the uh, the way in which the media is endlessly trying to optimize uh, clicks on links and uh, eyeballs on screens and the logical, necessary competitiveness of our election, of our system of elections means that people get very polarized and meaning the sort of social meaning of political campaigning disappears and turns into brand management. All of those things, I think, have left people very deeply disquieted about politics and they're thrashing around looking for uh, people to show how angry they are. And we end up with Brexit and Trump. And I would add, we ended up getting rid of carbon pricing in Australia, completely uh, absurd thing to do, uh, but it suited the opposition in 2013 to oppose carbon pricing, just as it suited Paul Keating to oppose the GST in 1993. Uh, pure political optim uh, opportunism, uh, but very well suited to the to political combat in our system. So that's why I think we need to focus on that question if we're to get through the the crisis with Brexit and Trump that uh, is upon us. Well, it's it's an Athenian model, isn't it, where you're suggesting a, like a jury system politically, but how would that work? So what I've suggested is, firstly, I'm kind of, a, a, as much as I might sound <laughs> like a pessimist, I'm a kind of glass half full guy. So we've done pretty well since the French Revolution and the American Revolution, which gave us this model of democracy by elections. So I actually don't want, I, I basically want to leave that intact in the lower house. Uh, so we would continue to have 
the, the model that I'm proposing, we would continue to have governments formed in the lower house. I don't even mind if we go on with the Senate. But what I want is I want a citizen's chamber, a chamber of, uh, say, 199 Australians chosen mostly at random, but so long as they're representative of the gender divide of Australia, of the regional versus city divide, the age distribution of Australia and so on. And I would want that house or that chamber to actually be part of the parliamentary process. So if you ask yourself what would have happened with the incoming coalition government trying to get rid of carbon pricing in 2013, I think it would have been, I I think a group of randomly selected Australians would have very quickly cottoned on to the fact that they were being sold a complete crock. Uh, I don't know whether you know this, but uh, do you know what the cost on the budget is of abolishing carbon pricing this year? No, tell us. 11 or 10 or 11 billion dollars so it would make a major it's a it would make a major contribution to the budget deficit so that's the sort of constitutional model i want to get to but i mean that's a pretty that's a pretty grandiose ambition the point my uh, i have a more simple point to make which is that if we could raise funds through philanthropy and crowdfunding simply to run a chamber like this on, a, if you like, a wildcat basis, just as a piece of political activism, I think that would have a big effect on politics. I think it would have been much harder for, for Tony Abbott to campaign against and then to abolish carbon pricing, especially with the way things work out, uh, you know, the, the, the delicate balance of power in the Senate. I think that would have been much more difficult if all Australians could see that people just like them, uh, which, of course, is the great selling point of a jury in criminal cases, people just like them who've spent time looking at it think that it doesn't add up. Uh, And I think that's the sort of way that we could insulate ourselves from the crazy kind of things that are going on in the UK and the US uh, and also allow politicians to start solving some of our problems. At the moment, politicians go into the business to try and do a good job, but they become fairly uh, rapidly come aware that they can't do anything much if it gives their opponents some kind of zinger one-liner in the media against them. So think of things like trying to move uh, the our, our, the whole way we handle illicit drugs from a law and order uh, agenda into a harm minimization and a health agenda. All the evidence we have tells us that that works much better. It's much cheaper. It's much more effective. But in the current system, you end up with your opponents, whether they're liberal or labor, saying you're uh, you're going soft on crime, etc, uh, etc. Et so there are various kind of madnesses that we're being led into by the system as it works at the moment, electoral politics, and the hyperactive media, uh, and this is a way to slow that down and to make sure that we're not just governing according to the will of the people, but also to the considered will of the people, and I think that could make quite a big difference. And uh, it could actually be translated into other areas, couldn't it? 
Exactly. So uh, I'm in um, in a couple of weeks. I'm uh, I'm in uh, the UK where I'm giving a public lecture and I'm arguing for to to in, in, to relitigate the Brexit uh, campaign and to essentially concede that the will of the people is for Brexit, as shown in the referendum last year. Now let's consider what the considered will of the people is. Let's run 10 citizens' juries all around the country on the same day and see what people think when they've got time, say, a couple, over a couple of weekends to consider the arguments, to, to get evidence from experts, whoever they want, to consult and talk among themselves as well and then make some kind of decision. I, I, here's another idea. Imagine if... This only occurred to me a couple of days ago. The uh, whenever I think of a political problem, I think, okay, how could this sort of the, this whole repertoire comes from ancient Athens, of course? How might it be used? So think of the Greek crisis. Imagine now. I can't prove that this would have worked out better, but it certainly couldn't have worked out worse. Think of the Greek crisis. What's what's going wrong there? Is that there's the somehow this need for generosity between people to solve problems is somehow nipped in the bud. It's, it's as I like to say, that the right don't care and the left kind of sentimentalise the weak rather than try to bring about some real engagement between the weak and the strong. Imagine if you've got 99 uh, Greek people chosen at random, 99 German people chosen at random, and put them together for a few weekends, flew them to, you know, Berlin and Athens on alternate weekends for a month or more, and asked them to to tell us what they thought. How could we get through this? Uh, because there's plenty of, you know, plenty of um, bad things happening on either side, and it's amazing what people what people do when they actually meet each other. The the, the great. Um, thing I have in my mind is Christmas 1914 in World War One, when these these people were f trying to kill each other. And uh, then they started singing hymns and sending each other presents. And they all met in no man's land before they were herded back into the trenches. The authorities were very concerned about it. So I th I'm calling for a um, a Christmas 1914 moment. Nicholas Grin, thank you very much for your time. That's fascinating. Thanks a lot, Leon. Thanks, Nicholas. That's great. So what do you think about that, Leon? Well, it's an interesting idea. It's certainly, certainly the political system is creating all sorts of issues at the moment. And so the idea of getting some wise people in to deliberate on issues is an interesting proposition. Yeah, I think he's right that the state of politics, the, the sort of blame game that goes on and the failure to meet issues is what's upsetting the public here and America. And That's right. So his solution is very interesting. Put the jury on the government. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, and now the news. What have you got for us this week? Well, now? Gary, in an unusual move, US President Donald Trump asked Senate Republicans for a show of hands in support of potential nominees for chairman of the US Federal Reserve. Senator Tim Scott told Bloomberg that Trump's asked specifically about Stanford University economist John Taylor and Federal Reserve Governor Jerome Powell. He also singled out the current chair, Janet Yellen, 
Uh, Scott said Trump didn't announce a winner, but he said, I think Taylor won. And the request was made at a lunch with a caucus. Now, the choice of the Fed chair will be one of the most important economic decisions Trump will make because the Fed has a role of safeguarding the US economy and is looked upon as a source of global financial stability. Asked why Trump requested a straw poll of senators on the Fed chair, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders replied, the president is taking that decision very seriously. Kind of an understatement, isn't it? That's right, but yeah. a show of hands? Yeah. It's very unusual. Yeah, it seems likely Trump will want the Fed to increase fl- inflation a bit, uh, which should drop the value of the Australian dollar, I suppose. That's right, and it's going to be interesting, and of course he's going to be making his announcement next week before he heads off to Asia um, on November the 3rd, so well, let's watch that space. Now, Malcolm Turnbull, whose first job in the Abbott government was to set up the National Broadband Network, says it was a big mistake to set up a new government company to roll out the MBN. He also considered there was a reasonable question mark over whether taxpayers would ever see a return from the project. And the Prime Minister attacked Labor for what he called the calamitous train wreck of a project and said he had to play the hand of cards I was dealt when he gained control of the project as Communication Minister in 2013. And this came after MBN Chief Executive Bill Morrow warned that MBN was losing money and would only make a profit if it was given government protection against competition from mobile networks, particularly the 5G network. Mr Turnbull attacked the former Labor government's prediction the MBN would produce yearly yields of 6-7%. to Still, the federal government, Gary, is committed to selling the MBN once it's fully established, despite Prime Minister Turnbull casting doubt of whether it will ever be commercially viable. And Communications Minister Mitch Vyfield said far from having to write down the asset, he said it is our absolute intention to sell the MBN sometime after 2020. And that's when the $49 billion rollout is scheduled to be complete and the network delivering positive cash flow. And I just don't understand it. Who would buy it, Gary? Well, if they do manage to sell it, it's going to be the biggest wooden nickel in the world. Why would you buy something that can't make a profit? And why was it set up as a government instrumentality in the first place? If you look at the Kiwis who've got excellent NBN, they let the telco. And what should have been done in Australia, and this was actually suggested at that time, was you split Telstra in two and you have one arm looking after retail and the other arm looking after networks. And Telstra actually was quite in agreement with that. I can remember talking, yeah, we talked to Ziggy Switkowski. That's right. About it. That's right. So, you know, this is a very, very bad decision. Now, on consumer confidence, last week's labour force figures with close to 20,000 new jobs, sending unemployment down to 5.5%, its lowest level in four years, has pushed up Australian consumer confidence. The ANZ wrote more consumer confidence index bounce back from last week's fall, rising 0.8% to 113.3, taking the index back to its long-term average. The outlook on economic conditions over the coming year rose by 4.3% from the previous week to 103.5. This was the highest since July and above the long-term average for the first time in two months. Expectations about economic conditions in the first five years rose 3.5%. On the other hand, consumers' views about current financial conditions fell for a second consecutive week, bringing the index value close to the long-term average the outlook for future financial conditions slipped by 0.9%. So that's what the jobs figures did. And I notice Ed Husick, a shadow employment minister, is talking about doing a study on the implications of automation on the economy. I think that's a very, very smart thing to yep, do. I mean, you can bet when driverless cars come in, what's going to happen to the trucking industry, what's going to happen to the taxis, what's going to happen to the car servicing industry. That's right. Well, Husick says an estimate is 250,000 truck drivers will lose their jobs virtually overnight. And that doesn't count the cab drivers either and all the others. Well, 
Also, despite soaring electricity prices, Australia's inflation has come in below economists' expectations at 0.6% for the quarter. Figures from the ABS show the consumer price index rising 1.8% through the year to September quarter 2017, having and that was down from 1.9% in the June quarter of 2017. And economists had forecast a CPI rise of 0.8% and 2% respectively, so it's below economists' expectations. It was weak. And the main contributors to the rise prices were electricity 8.9% and tobacco prices up 4.1% but the overall figure was dragged down by vegetables down 10.9% and automotive fuel down 2.3%. Now I reckon the higher Australian dollar, weak wages having a lot to do with this. Yeah, inflation is dropping as well. And that's the problem. Now, interesting proposals from the Productivity Commission wants automatic dispensing machines replacing pharmacies, low-value healthcare procedures being defunded, people with real-world skills being made teachers and drivers being charged for the use of roads under a series of audacious proposals that the Commission believes could add $80 billion per year to economic growth, an amount it says would grow over time. The five-year program requested by the Treasurer Scott Morrison is designed to jumpstart innate or so-called multi-factor productivity, which the Commission believes has barely grown since 2004. And the Productivity Commission also threw a spanner in the Turnbull government's attempts to settle Australia's intractable climate wars, calling the policy landscape a regulatory mess, and it wants a price on carbon. Well, as Nick Gruen said, the carbon price was a casualty of Australian politics, and dropping it, as he said, was one of the Parliament's worst and most illogical decisions. Now, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission Enforcement Review Task Force has recommended steep penalties for corporate wrongdoers amid concerns the punishment for white-collar crooks is too weak. And it's recommended nearly tripling the penalty for corporations from $1 million to $2.625 million, or three times a benefit gained or loss avoided, or 10% annual turnover, whichever penalty is greater. The penalty for individuals is more than doubled, from 200000 to 525000 And the task force paper, which is out for public comment, also recommends increasing prison sentences. This would see maximum terms of imprisonment for criminal offences increasing under the Corporations Act to 10 years in jail, fines of 945000 or three times the benefits gains for individuals or 10% annual turnover for criminal offences. And the task force has also recommended what it calls disgorgement remedies, requiring the corporate crook to give up any profits he or she made as a result of his or her illegal activity. And it wants ASIC to deal with a wider range of offences. task force will make its recommendation to the government at the end of next month. It's on the eve of uh, Greg Medco's departure and quite clear the culture in uh, ASIC has changed quite a lot. I think so. Now, in a clear victory for Telstra, the corporate regulator has decided it won't force major telcos to let competitors roam on their regional mobile networks. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission said a declaration would not promote the long-term interests of end users, and the ACCC inquiry found that their declaration would likely not lead to lower prices or better coverage or quality of services for regional Australians. I mean, it's an insanity to sort of try and ban or control somebody using a superior service. Well, the bottom line is most people out in the bush use Telstra. Yeah, they've got a better service. The ANZ has struck a settlement with the Australian Securities Investments Commission on the first day of the trial over its alleged rate rigging. The settlement leaves NAB and Westpac to fight on their own in the federal court, although NAB is now in negotiations and close to a deal. And the trial comes after ASIC's investigation of the major banks over the integrity of their 
past bank bill swap rate submissions where traders had manipulated rates to make more money. An investigation began in 2012 and the ANZ statement to the market did not mention any money, but the ANZ said the financial impact will be reflected in the 2017 financial year results and would be largely covered by the provisioning held at the 31st of March 2017. And the trial before Justice Jonathan Peach focusing on the bank's conduct is expected to be politically significant because it focuses on the cultural issues inside the banks. It's expected to run for 12 weeks and as a result of all of this, it's been adjourned till next week. The Federal Court has allowed more time for National Australia Bank and ANZ to finalise their settlement agreements with ASIC and Westpac has shown no signs of wanting to settle. They're going to fight, aren't they? That's right. Rio Tinto now faces a class action over its allegations of fraud relating to its ill-fated Mozambique venture. Seattle law firm Hagens, Berman, Sobol, Shapiro filed a lawsuit on behalf of holders of American depository receipts linked to Rio's London stock. The legal action comes less than a week after the SEC charged Rio Tinto and two former executives, including its former chief executive, Tom Albanese, with fraud over the company's handling of the disastrous US 3 $7 billion coal deal in Africa and Rio Tinto is accused of misleading investors and filing incomplete accounts by failing to disclose the bad news about its investment. And this is going to take years in American courts. And it's not good news for Rio. Now Maya's biggest shareholder, now this is this is really interesting Gary, this is now trench warfare at Maya. Its biggest shareholder, Solomon Liu has excoriated the retailers board and is now threatened to call an extraordinary general meeting to get two seats on the board after Maya refused his request for a change. In its note to the ASX, Lou's company Premier Investments, which owns Smiggle, Just Group, Peter Alexander Brands and has a dominant 10.8% stake in Maya, said Lou had met with Maya's chairman-elect Gary Hounsell on Friday, October the 6th, and had asked for the appointment of two Premier Independent Directors of the Maya Board and the appointment of a further independent non-Premier non-executive director to the board, and that request was refused. And in its statement to the market, Maya chairman Paul McClintock said the retailer had rejected Premier's demand for three nominee directors because of what he called the potential for conflicts of interest given Premier and its associate status as one of our largest suppliers and competitors. So all eyes will be on the Maya AGM and whether there's going to be an EGM. And it's basically McClintock saying, over my dead body, does Solly get in? Well, Solly is saying the problem is that Maya board has absolutely no retail experience and that's the issue. Well, that, that reflects some similar situations in the newspaper industry. That's right, indeed. Indeed it does. <laughs> but, you know, the issue too is that Maya was once a dominant piece of Australian retailer. It, it now isn't. Here we are about to have a total revolution with Amazon coming in and all sorts of other things. And I note also Kogan is not doing as well as he did. That's right. Now, West Farmers has reported a drop in same-store food and liquor sales growth at Coles in the first quarter of 2018 with the retailer cutting prices to compete with Aldi and Woolworths. And West Farmers said the nation's number two grocery chain's first quarter food and liquor sales grew 0.4% on a comparable store basis. That's down sharply from the growth of 0.7% adjusted for Easter in the June quarter and 1.8% from a year ago. Headline food and liquor sales for the first quarter came in at $7.97 billion, up 1.5% on the same three months last year. And total sales of Coles, including Coles Express convenience stores, were down 0.3% year-on-year in the first quarter to $9.37 billion, and that reflected lower fuel volumes. People are more careful about buying such expensive petrol. And that's it for this week. And uh, next week, we've got a terrific interview with our bike man, Wade Wallace. That's right. All about how bikes are taking over, commuting and things like that. And I know that part of that process is the increasing number of pick-up and ride bikes that are coming into Australia. And that's it for us this week. You can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Looking forward 
to bring you all the business, finance and economics news next week.